Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. Those of you, today's your first time at First Charlotte. We're glad that you're here. We have a gift for you. And so uh, before you leave today, stop by our orange tent outside and we'll give you that gift. We want to take care of lunch for you this week, a gift card to Chick-fil-A. Those of you that are joining us online, we are so glad to have you this morning. Glad that you've joined us. Hope you're having a great week. A good morning. Welcome to worship this morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn them to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. And just this past week, uh, Kyle and I were remembering by telling some people our story and our experience with the many dogs that we've had in life. And I want to tell you a story about one of the dogs that we've had. I've always had a dream of having a hunting dog, a really good hunting dog. And um, that, that takes a lot of time, that takes a lot of focus, takes a lot of money, takes a lot of space, takes a lot of patience. And so I put it off and put it off and put it off. But about six years ago, um, kind of had the desire to have one. And randomly got a phone call from a friend of mine who worked in the oil field. And he said, hey, listen, my boss um, has got a dog that they're looking for a home for. And I'm like, well, that's great, but I'm not looking for just a dog with, that needs a home. I'm looking for a hunting dog. He said, no, that's the point. This dog is, it's a hunting dog. And it's actually already been through training um, it's, it's about a year old, and man, it wouldn't take a lot to work with this dog, and it comes from an incredible bloodline. And I said, so, well, I'm interested, and how much does it cost? Because I'm thinking, you know, by that point in time, having gone through some training, really good bloodline, we're looking at a couple thousand, few thousand dollars here, and so forth. And I know that's not going to fly with Miss Welsh. And he said, well, here's the good news. It's free, but you got to interview for it. Never interviewed for a dog. Um, so I said, okay. Uh, so he sent me the paperwork on the dog, and sure enough, this dog's bloodline was incredible. I mean, it was, it was like everything you want a bird dog, a duck dog to be in bloodline. And it was red fox. So it was this beautiful lab, uh, beautiful colored lab. So, so we basically, we had to jump on it. So that night, we piled the kids in the car. The reason we brought the kids is because who can say no to little kids? And so I figured it doesn't really matter what I say in this interview. My kids are going to love all over that puppy, and they're just going to, they're going to love it. Well, sure enough, that worked. And so we went to this home of this family, and they, they interviewed, they asked us questions, all this kind of stuff, talked about how I wanted to hunt with the dog, and they're like, well, great, that's wonderful. They asked about our house, all this. Anyway, we went home with the dog, Maddie. Beautiful, beautiful lab. And uh, so it was middle of the week, didn't really have a lot of time to, to kind of see what this dog knew already and how, how ready this dog was. Um, so weekend comes, and got a little time on Saturday morning, so I take Maddie out. I've got a, a dummy that I'm going to throw to it and stuff, and so um, she, she takes the first few commands really well. We walk out. I say, heel. She's walking right next to my heel. I say, sit. She sits. I said, and I took the dummy. I said, stay. I threw it, and I mean, she's like all of a sudden focused in on it. Like, we got a good thing going here, and so I say, Mark. Nothing. Maddie. Nothing. Fetch it up. Hunt it up. Nothing. Come on. And I, I grab her by the collar, and I'm going to walk her out because she might have forgotten. And the second I grab her collar, she cowers down to the ground, and she won't move. So I, like every other duck hunt I've been on thus far in my life, I go get the dummy and bring it back. And work with her and work with her, but she will not take the command. Eventually, I get her to go, but she just won't bring it back. And I'm like, what, what, is, what is going on? Well, enough of that. Forget that for now. Well, this is going to be a long journey, but this dog's great. 
good bloodline, perfect, everything good. And then I get this hunch, you know, I've always admired people that carry their dog everywhere they go. And so I'm like 32 at the time, and I think I'm going to be, I'm going to be that old pastor man that always has his dog with him. I don't know if you've ever met, you've probably never met anyone like that, but I thought, what a great idea. So Monday morning work goes around, and Maddie jumps in the truck with me, and I take her to the office with me, and she's going to be my dog, always by my, always by my side. So first day at work goes great. I mean, she sits at the foot of my table. I study for my sermon and everything. We get up. She goes outside, comes back. I, I go to lunch. She comes with me. She stays in the back of the truck the entire time, come back in, work the rest of the day, and we load up and go home perfect. I'm like, this is, this is awesome. At least she can do that. Day two, Tuesday rolls around. Same thing. Take her to work in, uh, in the office. More people in the office that day. So she's kind of moving around, uh, seeing what's going on. I've got a meeting an appointment, someone comes in to visit with me about 10 o'clock that morning. And um, so she's out kind of walking around the office and I'm with this person meeting. And then my, all of a sudden my youth minister knocks on my door, peeks his head in and he said, um, pastor, got a little situation with Maddie. What? And then all of a sudden he had cracked the door open enough, realized what the situation was with Maddie. Well, pastor, She's apparently sick at her stomach and decided to be sick at her stomach all over my office floor, wall, and down the hallway. And sure enough, somewhere along the way, she just decided that everything in her stomach needed to come out of her stomach, out of every hole she had to come out of her stomach, and so forth. It was disgusting. It was awful. We had to close the offices the rest of the day, had to call in the cleaning company to clean the carpets, clean the walls, and all that kind of stuff. And that was when I realized, Maddie's not going to be a work dog. And nor the next few weeks was she going to no longer be an in-the-house dog. It was like this constant like hiccup and hang-up along the way. And so, so I went back to, to working with her and working with her and working with her. And the only thing I could eventually do with her is make her a great pet for someone else. She just wouldn't become what I wanted her to become. All the hiccups, all the hang-ups, so that eventually that I, I lost interest, I gave up. And finally, we found a wonderful family that just wanted exactly what Maddie was, just a dog, and so forth. You know, we all go through things in life. We all begin things in life that at some point in time, there's a hang-up, there's a hiccup, and we give up. Things get a little different. They get a little tough. We get a little busy. We, we kind of lose our way and focus of what we're doing, or maybe we lose interest in it, and, and we, we hit these hang-ups. We hit these roadblocks, and and we don't move forward. How, how many projects have you begun and you haven't completed? How many things on the honeydew list have you begun? How many of us have begun a degree and did not finish it yet? How many of us had a dream that we had that we would do something or attain something and wouldn't become it? There was just too many hiccups, too many distractions, too many hangups along the way so that we eventually gave up in it. The Apostle Paul's writing the Church of Galatians because of that. They had begun a journey and in the midst of that journey, they had hit a snag. They had hit a hang-up. They had lost focus on what they were supposed to be focused on. And as a result, they had stopped moving forward. They had a relationship with Jesus. They were in the journey with Jesus. But because of a hang-up, that's what the entire book is about, the hang-up that they faced in their life and what's keeping them from growing. And it's very well possible that many of us, in fact, maybe you today, 
have hit a snag in your relationship with the Lord. You have hit a hang-up. You have hit a hiccup where whether you realize it or not, you are not moving forward in your relationship with Jesus. You're stuck. I want to look at what Paul has to say about being stuck and particularly about the hang-ups, some perspective that we need to get and some things that we need to understand about hitting these moments of of hindrance, of hang-up. So draw your attention to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. If you would stand in honor of God's word this morning, listen to what Paul says. You were running well. Who hindered you? Who hung you up? Who snagged you? Who cut in on you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You can be seated this morning. There's a few things I want you to understand about the journey with Jesus and about hang-ups in the journey with Jesus. And the first thing you need to understand is that the Christian life is a marathon. This is a long journey of walking with Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 7. You were running well. All throughout the New Testament, the journey with Jesus, the Christian life, what we are on if we've trusted Christ is described as running a race. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run so that you may obtain it. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight or contend for the faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight which, and sin which so closely clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is marked before us. The Christian life, the journey with Jesus, is a race. It has a definite start, and it has a definite end. The definite start is when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith. If you've not done that, you've not started the journey. There's a definite moment where we receive that gift of grace. And then there's a definite finish line. What is that? When you breathe your last breath here on this earth and you breathe your first breath in heaven. That's the finish line. And the prize is heaven. So from the moment of the start to the moment of the finish, we are in a journey from one to the next. The distance from one to the next is the Christian walk. And while none of us know how long that is for us, we do know this. It's not short. This is a long distance race. It's not a sprint. It's not a 100 meter. It's not a two or 400 meter. This is a long journey. Nor is it a cruise or a ride in a car or a ride on a boat. 
It's not something we get on and we just naturally progress while someone else drives the boat. No, the picture that the Bible gives us, the picture that we're described of, is one of a race. And if you know anything about running, running requires effort on your part. No one can run for you. It's a long race. We're running well. Apparently these people had begun really well. Like many of us, we do. When we gave our life to Christ, we, we got very serious about it. We got excited about this new Christian life. But what you realize along the way as you walk with Jesus is that it's not so easy. You know, I, I trained for a marathon one time. I say trained for a marathon. I never run a marathon. I made a decision I was going to train for a marathon. got on a six-month training program and I was actually really doing good with it. And so every week I would increase my mileage, ran about five times a week, increased my mileage. And I got about to the halfway point or just over the halfway point. And at the halfway point, you run a half marathon, so 13.1 miles. And I was excited for that. Everything had been smooth to that point. And the, the week before my half marathon, I went the longest distance that I ever been, 11 miles. I was so pumped up about that. It was a great run. I mean, it was just a great feeling. So the next week comes and I begin to do the half marathon Saturday morning. I start really early, and I'm going to run 13.1 miles that day. And everything was smooth. Everything was good until mile 11.1. And every step after that was awful. I hated every breath I took. I hated every step I took. I hated the pain that I felt. I hated how far away the finish line seemed at that point in time. And from that point on, I never did it again. I quit. Because it wasn't easy. Neither is a walk with Jesus. This is not an easy thing. And one of the things that makes it not easy are the hang-ups and the hindrances that we have along the way. He says, who, who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. Who cut you off? Who got in the way of your journey of walking with Jesus? Now, it's a rhetorical question because Paul's been dealing with who it was the entire time. But who is it for you? For them, it was these Judaizers. It was these people that had twisted the gospel by adding works to it, adding particularly circumcision to it, saying that, listen, you, you, you cannot be saved if you only believe in Jesus alone. You've also got to do these certain things. These people had hindered them. They had gotten in the way. Who hinders you? What holds you up in your journey of walking with Jesus? Let me tell you two things that hold all of us up at some point in time in our journey. The first one's pretty obvious, and it's sin. Sin holds us from moving forward. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. You cannot walk this journey without having specific moments in your life where you're letting go of sin in your life. That's part of the journey. 
Part of the journey of walking with Jesus is becoming more like Jesus. And the truth of the matter is you and I have things in our life that do not line up with Jesus. And there are moments, there are hurdles, there are hangups along the way where we've got to let some of those things go. And eventually we've got to let all those things go. But the hang-up happens in our lives when we hold on to that sin. It's like trying to run a marathon, getting out to run 26.2 miles while you're 50 pounds overweight, carrying a backpack, two suitcases, and ankle weights. You're not going to get it done, bro, unless you start shedding off some of that stuff. And that's the journey with Jesus. It's this long process that we have of shedding off the stuff that he's freed us from, that he's set us free from, from letting the Holy Spirit of God in our lives deal with the sin in our life. And the truth is, brother or sister, is that there are areas in your life that you have refused to let go. And thus, you've been cut in on. You're being hindered. Because you're holding on to that pride, you're holding on to that lust, you're holding on to that relationship. You're refusing it to do it his way and wanting to do it your way in every area of your life or some particular areas of your life. And because you're clinging to that, because you're carrying that weight, you are not able to move forward in your relationship with God. Your sin has cut you off. It's held you up. As the scripture says elsewhere, we have quenched the spirit his work in your life you are turning the faucet off by not letting God help you remove that sin from your life it's a hindrance the second hindrance that we sometimes face is is, is somewhat of what they faced and that's the hindrance of other people on the, on the surface level, there are some relationships that we have with people that hold us back, partly because of sin, partly because of bad influence. But in particular, for these people's circumstances, what had cut in on them, what had hindered the, their, their, will, their obeying the truth was the false doctrine that these other people were influencing them with. And the presence of that was blocking them from moving forward because they were beginning to accept what these other people were teaching. It blocked in. 1938, the NCAA championships was a big one um, because there was a runner that was projected at that race to be the first man to break the four-minute mile. Had not ever been done. No one had run a mile in four minutes. Now it happens all the time, but at that day and time, no one had done it but Louis Zapparini who we've come to know as a POW, uh, World War II veteran. Great story, great book, great movie about him. But in his early days, he was, he was the fastest runner in the one mile. He held the world record going into that race, and it was projected that he, at that race, was going to break four minutes in the run. But during the race, in preparation for the race, several of the coaches had gotten together and come up with a tactic, and so several runners during the race blocked and boxed in Louis on that race. So as they're going around, several runners got in on him very closely and began to, to do some things that would hinder him from moving forward and, and, and breaking that four-minute mile, but also winning the race. One, one runner 
prior to the race had sharpened his spikes. And as they were blocking him in and boxing him in, he intentionally stepped on Louis's foot while they were running. And that step went straight through the shoe into his foot and he began to bleed. Another runner got on one side and began swinging his arms intentionally really wide and began hitting Louis in the ribs and in the chest to knock wind out of him, possibly break a rib. And the runner that was in front of him began kicking his feet up really high so that they would scrape his shins. So as they're running boxed in, Louis realizes what's happening to him, that he's being held back and that these guys are not going to let him loose. So as he's running, he finally finds a crack and he bolts for it, wins the race, and though he doesn't set the four-minute mile, he breaks his own world record that is held for 15 years after that. Whether it's our sin, whether it's others' sin, or whether it's the influence of other people, or whether it's the false doctrine, the twist of the gospel that other people bring into our lives, these things hold us back if we allow them to keep us from moving forward. But Paul says, man, this is, this is not of the Lord. This is not what God intends. This is not what God wants. This is not what God does. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Then notice what he says in verse 9. Something else we need to understand about the roadblocks in our relationship with Jesus. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That rhymes. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is an illustration that Jesus uses. A small amount of yeast affects the entire lump of dough. That it doesn't take a lot. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. That's the point that Jesus makes elsewhere. That it doesn't take a lot to affect the entire journey, to affect your entire life. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. But you and I need to understand is it always starts small. It doesn't take much to hinder us and to hang us up. The enemy knows this. Just one small spark can start a forest fire. Just one rotten apple can spoil the whole barrel. Just one single cell of cancer metastasize can kill a human being. Just a little poison can contaminate. It doesn't take a lot. Otolium is one of the most dangerous poisons known to man. Another word for it is actually Botox, believe it or not. Four grams of Botolium, just four, is enough undiluted to kill the entire human race. Doesn't take a lot. Paul says this because he needs to tell us, and we need to understand the tactic of the enemy is always small. His tactic is not just to come give you a full frontal assault. What a waste of energy and time. His greatest tactic in our life 
is through the unnoticeable or the manageable or the excusable or the justifiable. He comes through the cracks and the crevices, very rarely right through the front door. That's why Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 4, hey, don't let the sun go down in your anger and thus give the devil a foothold. Don't let his foot in the door because just a little goes a long way with him. If he can get you to give in to one cell of cancerous sin or one cell of false doctrine, then he knows That'll grow and grow and grow. You know, lately we've seen, and it's sad, I mean, honestly, it's, it seems like this has been a continual story, a continual headline, at least for the circles that, that I walk around in the Christian world, a continual headline of people that we've respected, both pastors, Christian leaders, even politicians and civic leaders that we've respected because of their faith become exposed for awful things that they've done. How does that happen? How can a person that, that preaches God's word, how can a person that leads so well, you know people like this, you know people in your own life that you're, you're shocked that it could happen. How does it happen? It started small. And friend, I want you to know that in my life and in your life, there is sin, there is doubt, there is fear, there is a misunderstanding of biblical truth or an acceptance of something that's not biblical truth that likely exists. It makes you and I no different from any person that we've ever seen proclaim Jesus and fall, as well as no different from this church in Galatia, because a little leaven, a little sin, a little heresy goes a long, long way. What is it in your life? What have you justified? What have you excused? What have you heard God say? That's not right. And you've refused to surrender. Because, friend, what that will do if you continue to refuse to fall upon the grace of God, confess and repent of that, the enemy can use that and will use that in your life to completely rip you to shreds, destroy your testimony, hurt those around you, and defeat you. It always starts small.
And you and I need to face the fact today, whether you're online or whether you're in this room, that there are small things in your life that have, listen, over the time that you've allowed these things to be in your life, whether it be pride or lust or greed or anger or bitterness or unforgiveness or hate, that have grown. I love what Luther says. The juggler with a thousand tricks is able to impress such an obvious lie on the heart that you would swear a thousand times it were true. And there's some of us in our lives that are saying, no, not me. No, I've got this under control. That won't take control of me. I, 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 listen, there's a lot bigger things to worry about. Not for you, there's not. A little leaven leavens, it always starts small. What do we do? We realize, look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. What a word of encouragement from Paul. I have confidence that you'll see it, admit it, and move forward. It's a picture of grace. What Paul is saying is, listen, I've not given up on you. Even though you have bashed my name in, Paul is saying, even though you have called me a heretic, even though you have deluded the gospel, even though you have twisted the gospel, and even though you have turned your back on me, listen, I, I, I have not given up on you. I have confidence that you will come through this and that you will see the gospel for what it is and you will see the issue for what it is and you will deal with it for what it is. And you know why Paul says that? Why Paul feels that way? I think it's because of what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For I am sure of this. I am certain, I am confident of this, of what? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Listen. God does not give up on you. When you begin that race, when you begin your journey with Jesus, from that moment on, he is faithful, faithful, faithful to you. And he will not give up on the purpose he has for your life. He will not give up on getting you to that finish line. Don't give up. On yourself. See, when you think about this journey with Jesus, what did it take to get into it? How did we come to this beginning? How did the, 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 the whistle go off and the gunfire that started the race? It was you surrendering to the grace of God. It was you accepting the grace of God. Well, miles down the road, when you have blown it, or when you have held on to sin, or when you have let doubt or false teaching encroach upon you, how do you get out of that? You fall. On the grace of God and move forward. The same thing is the same thing here. Don't give up. And not only don't give up on yourself because God's not giving up on you. Listen, church, we should not give up on each other. 
Paul didn't give up on these people. This entire book is because he didn't give up on them. He's pursuing them. He's with them. Yeah, he's, he's, he's laying the hammer down on them. He's walking some tough miles with them, but he's walking with them. That which leads him to what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Walk with each other because no one is too far gone. No one has messed it up so much that they are unworthy of sticking with them. We all have hang-ups. Don't give up. Keep moving forward. The scary thing is, is what he says next, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. See, those who are children of God, God doesn't give up on. But those who are not children of God will face the wrath and judgment of God. Isn't that awesome? Just to think about this, that that even though I may completely blow it as a follower of Christ, I'll never face the wrath and judgment of God. Jesus did that for me. And if you blow it, Without Jesus? Yeah, coach. Which is why you start that race. You get with him. I want you to see the last thing that Paul says because it's probably one of the most startling statements that Paul makes. It's a little awkward. I'm going to be honest with you. I've thought about this a lot this week and thought about how I'm going to talk about it. Because it's a quite, quite interesting statement. Paul shows, I mean, he gets passionate here. He gets a little crude here. And so listen to what he says. Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, if, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What Paul is saying is that apparently people were accusing him and saying, well, Paul's teaching the same thing we are. He says the same thing we do. And Paul's like, well, that's fake news. That's a lie. That's not what I'm teaching. And if it was what I'm, what I'm teaching, why are y'all persecuting me so much? Because I'm saying the same thing. It's not happening that way because I'm not saying the same thing. I'm not teaching circumcision. You guys are teaching a workspace faith. I'm not. Paul's upset about it. He's upset about the being cut in on and the hindrance that this church and these believers are having. He's upset about it because he longs to see these people move forward in their Christian life. He's passionate about seeing these people move forward in their Christian life. And he hates that someone's cut in on it and stopped it. He hates that they've given in to their own sin and they've given in to false doctrine and it's stopped him. So to the point that he says this, I wish that those who unravel you, unsettle you, those stupid people who are teaching you to circumcise yourself for the the sake of being right before God, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. What does that mean? It means what you think it means. This is by far the most intense, crude, and serious statement that Paul makes in, in all of his teaching. But there's a little history to it. There was a cult that was very well known in those days, the Cybele cult. And in that cult, the priests, in their devotion and dedication to God, would do just that. So while these Judaizers who are teaching that in order to be right before God, you must be circumcised. In order to be saved and to be truly right with Jesus and with God, you must take this act and this symbol and do this. What Paul is saying 
is that teaching is no different than the garbage that these pagans teach. If the Judaizers are so insistent on circumcision as the means of pleasing God, then why don't they just go all the way? Why don't you be ultra-religious and ultra-spiritual? And for that matter, I think that goes with anything else. If you think that giving money gets you to heaven, then why don't you give all your money? If you think that not cussing gets you to heaven, then why don't you stop talking altogether? If you think going to church gets you to heaven, then why are you leaving here in about whenever I let you out? If you think drinking alcohol sends you to hell, then I don't understand why on the earth you're about to go eat a huge meal with tons of carbs and unhealthy food involved in it that will also send you straight to the grave. Paul says it's no different. A works base, Jesus plus anything is nothing. Paul is passionate about it. So passionate that he wants to see these people leave. He wants to to understand how stupid and foolish this is. If the pagans believe that their human achievement can earn divine favor, then why why don't we go to the pagan extremes like others? Paul is passionate about running the race to be like Christ. You know, Jesus said something also passionate. That was a pretty severe statement he made. Matthew chapter 25 He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is better that you enter heaven with one eye than hell with both. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members so that your whole body not be burned in hell. Now, is Jesus telling us to cut our hands off? And gouge your eyes out. No, no. And neither is Paul really meaning what he said here. The point is this. God's purpose for your life, this journey that God has you on with Jesus is so worth it that we ought to do anything and everything we can to get the hindrances out of the way. To get the hangups and hiccups. We ought to do everything we can as a church to make sure that the gospel that we preach and teach is accurate and right. We don't twist it, that we don't turn it, that we don't deny some of it and ignore some of it, or that we don't add to it. And we all, as followers of Christ, take so seriously the sin that God confronts us with that we're willing to deal with it And to fall upon the grace of God, knowing that he'll forgive us and that he'll help us and he'll strengthen us. But we've got to admit it. We've got to confess it. We've got to put it before him. Passionate about your race. Are you passionate about your race? Some of you are living like you are on a cruise ship. Some of you are acting like, well, I already did my race. Deal with it, friend. Confess it. Get it right. Turn it to him. Let him 
shower you with his love and his grace and his mercy. And pick you up and move you forward. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If what holds you back is you think there is going to be a church and a God that says, ha ha, knew it was you. You shouldn't have done that. You dumb, stupid fool. Now your wife may say that, or this world may say that, but Jesus will not. Neither will we. Because his blood was spilled for our foolishness and sin to set us free. To fall on his grace. Let's pray. I want you to take a moment and I want you to just ask the Lord a very similar question that David asked. David said, search me, O God, know me, try me, and see if there is anything in me impure. Would you ask right now, whether you're at home or whether you're in this room this morning, for God to show you? God, what's holding me back? What's hindering me? What is it in my life that you're asking me to turn over and to give up? Is it a relationship? Is it a sin? Is it a habit? Will you confess it to the Lord today? Will you hand, let today be the day that you deal with it, that you become so passionate about moving forward. Some of you have held on this for so long. And as a result, there is a dullness to your walk with Jesus. Let it go. Give it to him. And move forward. Others of you, I want to ask you, what's holding you back from trusting in Jesus Christ? Why have you not surrendered your life to Jesus? Why have you not said, Jesus, come into my life and save me? Why have you not turned your life over to him? Is it that you think you've not done good enough? Is it a doubt, a fear that you have? Surrender that to him this morning. Turn your life over to him. Jesus, we thank you for the richness of the cross, that it is enough for the sins of the past, for the sins of the present, for the sins of the future, that it is enough to save the vilest sinner, and it is enough to save me. Purge us, Lord. For we want to be like you. Cleanse us. For we want to walk close to you. Give us the courage to surrender. In Jesus' name we pray.